Acts 16, beginning of verse 6. Let's read together, let's read aloud. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we give you thanks and praise for once again giving us the opportunity to read and to study your word this morning. And how precious your word is to our hearts, Lord. How wonderful it is to know that we can today open our Bibles, read the word together, study it together, and grow together in your mercy, your grace, and in your truth. Lord, may this be an encouragement to us all as we study this passage. May it help us, Lord God, to, to realize the things that are necessary for us to serve you, are waiting upon you, are listening to you, are knowing that you have called us with a precious calling. And today, Father, we pray for those that are living in, in the areas that will be affected by this particular uh, hurricane and even the one that is following it. Today we pray, Father, for your mercy. That, Lord, uh, you who are in control of the winds and in control of the seas would have your own way, Lord God. But we pray, we pray, Father, for safety for those that are traveling out of these areas. We pray for those that have to stay behind for whatever reason. We pray for families and friends, Lord, that may be living in these areas. Father, may you protect them and keep them and watch over them. And in all of this, Lord God, may we as a nation realize that we need to continue to look to you, Father, for strength, for wisdom, for help in our times of need. Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. Now, I don't know what they teach in high school history anymore or what they teach in history at all in the public schools, being that they've done so much revisionist history changes and all. But some of you may remember the name Horace Greeley. If you do remember the name Horace Greeley, raise your hand. Look at that. Three people. No, I'm just kidding. Horace Greeley, again. You might remember what Horace Greeley is famous for. Actually, he was famous for a lot of things, but he was really kind of famous for one thing. Well, let me talk a little bit about him. Horace Greeley, the founder and the publisher of the New York Tribune in the 1840s, is often credited with a famous quote which was actually made by a man named John B. L. Soule. The, the quote first appeared as the title to the 1851 Terre Haute Express editorial written by Mr. Soule. But along with being wrong, wrongly credited to Mr. Greeley, it has also often been misquoted. It was originally written as, 
Go west, young man, and grow up with the country. Now, do you remember Horace Greeley? How many remember him now? He said, go west. Well, they say he said, go west, young man. But uh, Mr. Sowell wrote, go west, young man, and grow up with the country. I'm still surprised that a lot of you didn't raise your hand. Okay, well, I'm praying for you. What did you learn when you were in school? Okay. Well, Greeley, in, in, a, in a July 13, 1865 editorial in support of homestead laws and liberal policies toward settlers, especially those going west, he did famously advise, go west, young man, go west and grow up with the country. Another historian, Walter A. McDougall, quotes Josiah Grinnell, the founder of Iowa's Grinnell College, as saying, I was the young man to whom Greeley first said it, and I went. So evidently he must have taken this particular statement and encouraged a lot of people to go west. And so this young man did, and eventually he began a college, which still, I believe, exists today. So what does this have to do with anything, especially with our subject today? Well, for all the historical knowledge that we can drum up from the past, which evidently some of you didn't do, but that's okay. You know, I can understand. We kind of fell asleep in history class. But for all this historical knowledge that we can drum up from the past, we know a couple of things. We know that Greeley wasn't the first to say, go west, young man. But may I add something to that? Neither was John B. L. Sowell. And I'll tell you who was the first to say, go west, young man. It was the Holy Spirit of God speaking to the Apostle Paul. It was God saying to Paul, go west, young man, go west, and take the truth of the gospel so that men and women may grow up in my kingdom. Now, he may not have said it in those words, but that's what we're going to learn today from this particular passage of Scripture. Now, remember that the Apostle Paul now has set off into his second missionary journey. He's no longer with Barnabas, but now Silas is traveling with him as well as Timothy. And they have now gone into the area of Asia Minor. And Paul was eager to enter into this new, for the Lord, uh, this new territory for the Lord by traveling slightly west, not completely west, but traveling slightly west into this Roman province of Asia, which included, by the way, the seven churches of Revelation, Ephesus being the prominent city in that region. And then, and then from there he goes into a northeasterly direction, or desires to go into this northeasterly direction into Asia Minor and Bithynia. Now again, Asia is not the Asia that we know of. You know, we just watch the Olympics and everybody says Asia is China and all of that. But this is, this is what was called then Asia and Asia Minor. What we would normally consider as, as Turkey today or much of the region of Turkey. So we know a couple of things. We certainly know that, that the Apostle Paul had a great desire to preach the gospel everywhere there was a need. We should always know that about the heart of the Apostle Paul. That he had the desire, the great desire to preach the gospel everywhere there was a need. But, and listen to me carefully, desire and need are not always indicators that God is leading. Desire and need are not always indicators that God is leading. Take, for example, the fact that we might desire to be involved in a certain ministry or mission. We might desire to be involved, but we are servants and must be directed by God. You see, we can have a desire, but we have to listen to God first. And if we listen to God, we need to do what He says. And we need to go where, he's, where He sends us. And we need to do what He wants us to do. 
There may, be, there may be a tremendous need in some area. Many of us know that there are areas of need for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city. We all live and work in various areas of, of El Paso. Some of us may know that there's a greater need in some, some areas than others. So we have that, that idea that there may be a tremendous need in some area, but whether it's a real need or whether it's a perceived need, still we are not free to meet the need unless and until the Lord is the one who directs us. Now some people might argue with that. Well, you're a Christian, you should just go and you just open your mouth every time that you go and every, every place that you go and, and, and whatnot. But listen. If we aren't ordained and led by the Holy Spirit, we will both establish ministries God never designed, and we will overlook serving in ways that He has, ne- that he has intended. We might overlook serving in ways that He intended us to do. You see the problem. Let me say it again. If we aren't ordained and led by the Holy Spirit, we will, be, or we will both establish ministries God never designed, and we'll overlook the ministries that He intended. So let's look at verses 6 and 7 more closely and make some necessary observations about this text. First of all, in verse 6, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, did you hear that? They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, verse 7, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. There they go, a little bit, e- uh, I mean, I should say a little bit west, and then they're forbidden. Then they want to go northeast. You see, they kind of backtrack up north. And God says, no. So the first thing that we can observe in this particular text is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy didn't have to be continually stirred up to serve. That's, that's the first thing I notice here. That they had gone through this region and, and, the, and they were going with the intent and the desire to meet a need which was to preach the gospel in these areas and in these regions. But the Holy Spirit forbid them. But the point is, they didn't have to be continually stirred up to serve. In fact, they had to be restrained and they had to be redirected. Now that's a very interesting thing about their hearts. You see, they were desirous to do what God had called them to do, which was to preach the gospel. But when the Holy Spirit says, no, you've got to listen. But the, the, the neat thing and the great thing is, God didn't have to force them to go anywhere. They were, op- they were checking doors, you know? you know. They were checking for open doors. Which door is the one? Which way? You know, so they kept going. And I said, not that one. No, not that one. Not that one. See, but they weren't stopping. They weren't stopping and saying, oh, look, you know, God forbid us. You know, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to move. We're not going to do anything. You know, we're going. No, they were continually looking for a way to preach the gospel. Now, if people have to be constantly stirred up to serve the Lord or to worship the Lord or to come to church... What does it say about the hearts of these people? God didn't have to do this. The minute He came into their life, they were ready to serve the Lord. There are people that need to be stirred constantly. Don't you want to serve the Lord? Don't you want to go here? Don't you want to, live? Don't you want to use the gifts God has given you? Well, I mean, there's how many possibilities? How many open doors are there? And yet people don't try the door. Paul didn't, Paul didn't have that problem. Silas didn't have that problem. Timothy, 
would have that problem later, but I'll talk about that in a moment. Well, I said that, you know, God didn't have to constantly stir up their hearts, but I, I must admit that the Lord did stir the children of Israel's hearts once. But I want you to consider the results of this stirring. If you will, turn to Exodus 36. Exodus 36. Uh, this is a particular chapter where, where the Lord is, is commanding Moses and the children of Israel to build him a tabernacle. A place to place the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. The place where they could worship God. Where God would meet with his people in the wilderness experience. And God had given him very careful plans as to what was needed and what was the uh, way that God wanted his tabernacle to be built and all. And in this particular passage in Exodus 36, uh, 36 verses 2 through 7, notice what it says, that Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom. Notice, God had already put wisdom in these people. And then he said, everyone whose heart was stirred. So was stirred means they had been stirred by God to serve him. They were stirred by God. But notice what happens. Everyone whose heart was stirred to come and to do the work, the work of building the tabernacle. And they received from Moses all of the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Every morning they gave an offering. Isn't it interesting? We, we, we only take one offering a week here. Over there they gave him an offering every morning. Some of you are saying, oh, thank God. But anyway. <laughs> then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came each from the work he was doing and they spoke to Moses saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. Their hearts were stirred and they were serving God. So Moses gave a commandment and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from giving or from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. There isn't a pastor in, in, in all of this land, in all of the earth. There's a pastor who would say, oh, please, don't give any more. Why? Because you haven't been stirred to give in the first place. I shouldn't say you haven't been. But the fact of the matter is, who gives like that? Their hearts were stirred to see God's work continue, to see God's work done. And they had to be restrained from giving any more. You've given enough. We would love to say that. Oh, I would love to say that today. You know what? We don't take an offering anymore because you've given enough. Everybody cheers and rejoices. Never, never happens. Number one, we don't give enough. And number two, we don't give sometimes at all. But you know what? We never ask, do we? Because we leave that between you and the Lord. But maybe there's sometimes we need to bring this out. Sometimes maybe we need to have our hearts stirred. Because, you know, ministry has to go on. Ministry has to take place. And it's taking place on a, day, on a daily basis. But I had to bring that up because, you know, we, we talk about people that need to be stirred all the time. Well, if, you've been, if you have to be stirred all the time, maybe you haven't been stirred yet. Like Paul and Silas and Timothy have been stirred to continue to check the doors of ministry to see if they're open to go in and do what God has called them and gifted them to do. So you have to ask the question, how could it be that the Holy Spirit would then forbid the preaching of the Word of God in Asia and Bithynia? Well, that brings us to our second observation in our text, 
And is that because there was an underlying work by the Holy Spirit of God, then Paul and his companions were not the right people in the right place at the right time to bring the gospel to the Roman province of Asia and other parts of Asia Minor. Again, there was nothing wrong with Paul's desire. See, I want you to know that. There was nothing wrong with Paul's desire. Was there a need? Certainly. There's a need today for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there was nothing wrong with Paul's desire. It just wasn't God's timing. If anything, we can call this the blessing of closed doors. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The blessing of closed doors doesn't mean, well, it's a blessing to close doors. We don't have to do anything anymore. No. It's just that you don't want to go where God doesn't want you to go yet. That's a blessing. It's better to be blessed by going where He does want you to go. By doing what He does want you to do. Where He wants you to do it. That's the blessing. If He closes a door here, He's going to open another one here. But how are you going to know unless you move to that place? And, that, and that's, that's another thing we have to consider. With what we've read in the book of Acts, of the church experience such, experiencing such troubled periods, you know, in the last few chapters we've seen a lot of things happening within the church. The church is going through growing pains, as it were, and whatnot. And here the Spirit is indicating a change, and with this change all kinds of options beckon. Isn't that, isn't that the case with change? That when change comes, all kinds of options now are kind of calling out. And the temptation would be to force open a door. You ever try to force a door open? You really want to go through a certain door and you do everything you can to go through it? You know, in this, in this rainy season that we've had this, this whole summer, our, you know, our door, our wooden doors expand. And, you know, you all have, you know, I'm sure you all face it maybe. You know, you just kind of like, the door that normally opens right isn't opening. And so, you, you know, you put your size 13 on it and try to kick it down to force it. And you might, you might hurt the door. You might hurt the lock. You might break something. You know, and it's a hard thing to, you know, to force open a door. But when God closes the door, don't try to force that door open. He'll always have another door for you to go through. See, and that, that's what we have to understand here. The temptation would be to force open a door, but wisdom says wait. Wisdom says wait. Now, that's not waiting without doing. That's just waiting on where God would have us to go. But we're going to find out that there's a constant motion in Paul's ministry here. Because let's remember something about the Apostle Paul. He was never one to just sit around and do nothing when he did not know where God wanted him to go or what God wanted him to do next. He just wouldn't sit around. He was always conscious of the missionary burden laid upon his heart for the lost. So when he was checked by the Spirit from going, into, in, going in one direction, he would take a step in another direction, trusting the Holy Spirit to confirm or to check that direction too. Always trusting that God was going to speak. And I think of Paul's burden. I think of the very burden that Paul had in his heart that we as Christians should always have in our hearts as well. The burden he expresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, when he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. But notice the second part of the verse. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me. What does that mean? In other words, let judgment come upon me if I don't preach the gospel which I have been called to do. 
Let judgment come upon me. That is what it means to say, woe is me. Oy vey. <laughs> but that's what it means. And how did the Holy Spirit speak to them? Could have been through a prophet, a prophecy. It could have been through just that still small voice in prayer. Paul was a man of prayer. We don't have to keep repeating that. We've seen that he was a man of prayer. He teaches the church in many of his letters that we need to be men of, and women of prayer. He was a man of prayer. He, he sought the face of the Lord always. God ministered to his heart. God said, don't go this way. Okay, we'll go this way. Don't go that way either. So what did he do? Well, first of all, what did the Lord do? What the Lord did was he kept moving Paul and his team west. Go west, young man. Keep moving west. That's what he was doing. Look at verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Troas is the, is the westernmost part of this area of Asia. And it's going to be where they launch out to the further west area where God would have them go. Notice verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And now after he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, one, one great thing in our connection with the Apostle Paul is that many times in our own lives, we, we become very uncertain at times of what God wants us to do at a certain time or a certain place. So there can always be an uncertainty uh, for believers. But when you look at Paul, Paul, there was an uncertainty there for Paul, yet he kept moving, you see. And I think that this is the lesson that we need to learn from Paul himself. Uncertain yet moving. Uncertain yet moving. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't staying still, you know, to see whether it was door number one, door number two, or door number three. He kept trying. He kept going in the direction to find out, God, where do you want me to go? He didn't stop, but he does pause to hear and wait to hear the voice of the Lord. What the Lord does is give Paul a vision in the night in which he hears the voice of a man from Macedonia. That's on the other side of the sea from where he is. Pleading with him to come and to help them. And this now moves Paul and his missionary team from the continent of Asia to the continent of Europe. Now, I'm going to make a, a, a strong statement here. The Holy Spirit changed the course of history and the cradle of society. The Holy Spirit changed the course of history and the cradle of society. When we are in those history courses that we've taken in the past or are taking even now, you won't hear that statement. You'll hear that some king or some warrior or some military general or whatever did this or that to change the course of history. No, the Holy Spirit changed the course of history. 
The Holy Spirit changed the cradle of society because up to this time, Asia had been the cradle of civilization, but now it was to give place to Europe. Europe was soon to become the center of Christianity and of civilization. Therefore, the great call of God to European evangelization is one of the greatest calls in all of human history. Not men, not man, not generals, not kings. Sovereign God, who's in control of all things. You know, we're facing a crossroads politically in our country today. The expectations of change and hope are being placed upon imperfect people of flesh. And no man or woman can or ever will be able to affect change upon a people or society like our sovereign God who created and upholds all things by the word of His power. And may I say to you, He has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, It simply begins with the name God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Who's that? Jesus. Whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Appointed heir over all things, creator of all things, the brightness of the glory and express image of the person we know as God, Jesus Christ who upholds all things by the word of His power. Who's in control of things today? People today can sway you. They can can make you look look at you as if, you know, you're going to be the Savior of the world, the Messiah. You're going to be the one to help us get out of whatever mess we may be in. But I tell you this, only Jesus Christ can help us get out of this mess. Is it any wonder then that history is His story? History is His story. It's God who changes the course of of nations. It's God who changes the course of things. It's God who's changed the course of society. And He ultimately knows what's going to happen. He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. So it's best for us to know Him than to know anyone else who may purport to have that kind of wisdom and knowledge. So with that in mind, Paul wanted to reach, listen, listen to this, Paul wanted to reach just a few cities in his region. Oh, let's go to these other cities. There's all kinds of cities that need Jesus. He wanted to reach a few cities in his region, but God wanted to give him a continent to win for Jesus Christ. 
You see, when God's purposes are starting to be revealed, God's purposes are much greater than ours. Paul wanted a few cities. God wanted to give him a continent. And what a mission field it would be. Think about this. The land of Greek civilization and fallen gods. A land of philosophy and esoteric religions. What a challenge that was going to be. But whoa, Paul was up to the challenge. As we'll see in chapter 17. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing when he puts us where he wants us to be. God knows what he's doing when he keeps us from going places he doesn't want us to be. That's a good thing to know. And he's a good one to know. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him today? Can you say, I know Jesus. He knows me. We spoke this morning. We had nice intimate relations this morning. We talked. He spoke to my heart in his word. I spoke to him in my need. And he's answered. And he's there. Do you know God? Do you know Christ? Look at verse 10 now. I want you to notice two things in verse 10. Now after he had seen the vision. Immediately. See the, the, the word? Immediately. Underline it. But only in your Bibles, not in the church Bible. Immediately. And then notice the next word. We sought to go to Macedonia. Up to this point it's they. Now the word, the pronoun is we sought to go to Macedonia. Concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's two things you have to notice. First of all, notice the word immediately. Paul didn't hesitate to answer the call of the Macedonian man. He immediately got up. He said, that's it. God is speaking. Now we know where we're going to go. Now we know where the open door is. Let's go. Oh, my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. You know, who remembers that song? You remember the song better than you remember Horace Greeley. Anyway. His bags were always packed, ready for God when he drops the the name or the place to go. Paul didn't wait. He said, let's go. It's time to go. Immediately. He didn't hesitate. The call for help has come. God says, that's the open door. You know that George MacDonald, an old British writer, once wrote this. He said, nothing makes a man strong. Nothing makes a man strong like a call for help. Nothing makes a man strong like a call for help. That was the Apostle Paul. When he was weak, he was strong. Why? Because he submitted himself to the power of the Holy Spirit. He submitted himself to the Lord. But when a call would come, boom, up he was. There he went. There he did the work that was necessary. Strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. To the church of Rome, Paul would write this in Romans 15, verses 1 through 4. He says, We then, who are strong, ought to bear the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. He said, we then who are strong ought to bear 
the scruples of the weak. He said to the Galatian churches in chapter 6 of Galatians verses 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That was the heart of Paul. He sees need, he responds to it. And then in 1 Thessalonians to the the church in Thessalonica, he says, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. He had the heart of one who said, we need to lift up the weak. We need to comfort the faint-hearted. And if the call comes, he was called to minister that comfort through the scriptures and through presence. Through presence. In other words, being there. Well, getting back to our text. The next thing to notice there in verse 10 are the two pronouns, we and us. Now this indicates that Luke joined the team in Troas. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the author of the book of Acts. The one who's writing this account. He's been writing it from the standpoint of they, them. Now he says us. So it tells us very much that here in Troas, he meets up with Paul and now travels with Paul. And that's an important thing because except for all of these hindrances by the Holy Spirit, except for all of these things where the Holy Spirit is forbidding them to go here and go there, Luke may not have been may not have become available to join them at all. Think think about it this way. Had Paul ignored the closed doors and crashed through them, Luke may never have become the author of the book of Acts or the gospel of Luke. Now, of course, we know that God's hand was in all of this so that he did become that. But, you know, we we think about that in those terms. If I don't go this way, what else might have happened? At that time... Paul didn't realize the greatness of God's purpose. And I think a lot of times we ourselves don't realize the greatness of God's purpose when He changes things in our lives. But remember that God's purposes will always be greater than our own. And God changed things in Paul's life, but Paul didn't realize the greatness of it at that particular time until later... Because what did God do for Paul? First of all, he gave him a continent for Jesus Christ. Secondly, he gave him a personal physician to travel with him. Paul would find himself in many physical uh, trials and circumstances and situations where he already, well, he had a physician and Luke was a doctor. So he had his own personal physician traveling with him. All of that was God's great purposes for Paul, but what about for us? The great purpose for us in all of this is that He has given us all the two men who would write more of the New Testament than anyone else did. Paul and Luke. The great purpose of God, you see. Much greater than our own. And let's remember this at at this juncture. Let's remember this thought. It's a simple thought. God knows what he's doing when he says no. Can you remember that? 
God knows what he's doing when he says no. I think we can remember that, don't you think? I think we ought to remember it. God knows what he's doing when he says no. I don't understand the people that like to argue with God. You're not going to win. Anybody try it? Nobody wants to raise their hand there. (laughs) But we've all tried. We've all tried to get our point across with God. We all think we, uh, you know, we ought to be Perry Mason here, you know, or whatever, you know. Perry Mason, who's that? that? Remembers Perry Mason, okay. Sorry, I'm a little old here, but anyway. (laughs) Okay. We We can't win with him. Besides, we don't want him to lose. Why? Because he's wiser than we are, greater than we are, knows the end from the beginning, as I said before. So would we want to listen to his wisdom? Well, let's go on and close out what uh, this passage is all about here. With all that in mind now, verse 11, Therefore sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, those little islands along the way to where they were headed. The next day uh, they came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. I'll explain the fact that he mentions it as a colony in just a moment. And we were staying in that city for some days, being Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, we went out to the city to the riverside, out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Well, first of all, we're told by Luke that they ran a straight course to Samothrace. Again, these little islands along the the way to Neapolis. And a ship took the team then about 125 miles, anywhere from 120 to, to 150 miles, depending on the route that it would take. But uh, it would take about 125 miles in just two days to Neapolis. That's, that's, that's pretty good by sea. Which would, would, uh, Neapolis itself was the harbor town of Philippi. Philippi was inward about, uh, 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 inland I should say, about maybe 10, 50 miles from Neapolis. But Neapolis was Philippi's port town. So, evidently that running of a straight course meant that the wind was very favorable, favorable with them. So what it says was, the Lord put them on a ship, and then he just blew on the sails, and man, that ship took off. Got there pretty quick. The reason we know that it's pretty quick is, and that it was God's way of doing things to get them there quickly, was because later on you read that when they go back in the other direction, it takes them five days by sea. So we know then that the Lord was with them. <clears throat> the Lord who controls the winds and the seas. Just blew them over there. Y'all remember making these little uh, paper boats? I do. I, you know, so, so some people do too. And you put them on the, on the water, you know, and you have little... You know, combat and battleship, you know, things going on. And you throw sticks at them and sink them, you know, big thing. We were in control of that ship, you know. We blew on the sail and there it went. That's what God did here. But he didn't hit them with anything to destroy them. Got them them where they were going. 
got them where they were going. Eventually, they would find their way to Philippi. Philippi, a, a, a Roman colony granted special privileges by Rome for some service it had rendered to the empire. That's what made it a colony. The city itself was named for the father of Alexander the Great, Philip, and was a city of importance because it was located at the eastern end of the famous Roman road, which was called the Ignatian Way. There's another famous Roman road. Many of us have taken that Roman road when we came to know about Jesus Christ through the writings of Paul in the book of Romans. The Roman road that teaches us that all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God, but that Jesus Christ himself justified us by the work that he did for us on the cross, so on and so forth. We'll talk about that another time. But someone once described Philippi as Rome away from Rome. It was built uh, to give some sense of what Rome and the, the glory and, and the, uh, the beauty of Rome was like. So it was a very Roman type colony and, and was blessed that way because of any number of things that they may have done for Rome. As was Paul's custom, he sought out a synagogue in the city only to find out that Jews were meeting outside of the city by the river, which meant that there were not even ten Jewish men in Philippi. There may have been some Jews in Philippi, but not ten men, because it took, it took ten men to establish a synagogue. That is the leadership of the synagogue, takes ten Jewish men. There weren't ten Jewish men, so the Jews would meet by the riverside, and that's where they held their, their prayers. Uh, and uh, then there wasn't that many Jewish men, because most of them were women, as we read. So somehow, sooner or later, Paul discovers the meeting by the riverside and he goes down there and he finds a few women gathered to pray. And then they meet one in verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized... She begged the saint, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now, very quickly here, you know, Luke writes down the, 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 the immediate facts here. But notice something had happened. Here they meet these people who are praying. Evidently, they're recognized as Jews. Would you please give some word or reading or, or some understanding of the reading for us? And Paul preaches Christ. And Lydia, who was there as a Gentile, but a worshiper of God, just like Cornelius had been, one who uh, loved the, the God of Israel and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hear the words of Paul about Jesus Christ. And it tells us that the Lord opens up her heart. She becomes saved and converted to Christ. But evidently, so does her household. And we'll talk about households later uh, in the next part. But uh, her household were baptized with her there at the river. And so she begs Paul and his team to stay with her. Well, getting back a little bit, going back a couple of steps, Paul had seen this man in a vision in Troas, but here he's ministering to a group of women in Philippi. But this truly reveals the change of Paul's heart, who as a Jewish rabbi a few years earlier would have probably held to the saying that, by the way, was a real saying of Jewish rabbis, it is better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered to a woman. 
Well, we know then that Paul's heart was changed because he didn't have a problem speaking to women about Jesus Christ. That was no longer Paul's philosophy or view. He was now obedient to the Lord who had gone before him to prepare the way. And therefore, he not only prepared the way, but he prepared the hearts of those that were listening to Paul. Now, the best description for Lydia is that she was a traveling saleswoman. She was from Thyatira, but she was in Philippi. So she was traveling. Evidently, she was very wealthy because not only was she one who dealt in purple, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but she also evidently had a house in Philippi that was big enough to hold her family, to hold her, her uh, uh, servants, as well as any guests. So dealing in purple dye is the, what, what really brought her fortune because, you see, uh, that purple dye was made from a very certain type of mollusk in the sea, and it was extremely expensive, and you know, to, 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 to be able to deal with this dye, you know, certainly they had to find uh, a lot of these uh, mollusks, and finally when they did, you know, they had to extract, you know, the, the dye from them and all. But one of its uses was for the stripes on the togas of Roman senators. You've often seen Roman senators portrayed, you know, with their togas, and and they were white togas, but but they had a, a purple lining on them or purple stripes on them, uh, signifying them being senators. Well, it was from that die. So she was a woman of considerable wealth. But it goes without saying that the Apostle Paul joined these worshipers by the riverside, preached the gospel of Christ to them, for we are told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart and saved her. Now, this teaches us a significant truth. It teaches us that the Lord is busy readying the hearts or making ready the hearts of unbelievers to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord prepares or readies the hearts of, of unbelievers to receive, to hear, and to respond to the word of God. Just as he made Paul ready and his team ready to reach out to the lost in Europe, he was now having them reach out to those he has made ready. And remember, when Paul was wondering where they were going, and they, they, God didn't permit them to go to Asia, he was making them ready for the trip to Europe. So Paul was being made ready, and now he comes to somebody who had been made ready to receive his word. You see, this is a very important aspect of understanding God's salvation. It comes down to this word, unless, unless, unless. You see, John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Draws him to me, brings him to me. We might need to understand that from the, from the Old Testament uh, viewpoint of Jeremiah 31 verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness and mercy, I have drawn you. Were we not drawn by the mercy of God to the cross when we came to know Christ? Were we not drawn to that mercy because of our sinfulness? Because we were so far from God? Because we felt that if, if, if we stayed in that condition, we would be completely and eternally separated from God? And yet someone told us about the mercy and love and grace and truth of Jesus Christ, that we were drawn to the cross by His mercy? Unless, you see, and by the way, we've, we've come to learn that we don't save ourselves. God is the one who saves us. Unless God does the ultimate work of salvation, who can be saved? Unless He prepares the heart and opens the heart, who would come? 
would we have come if he hadn't opened our hearts? The Lord opened Lydia's heart and she came. Unless God does that ultimate work. Now, listen to the psalmist, Psalm 94 verse 17. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would, have, would soon have settled in silence. Psalm 119 verse 92. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. Unless, you see. And even Jesus to Nicodemus says to him in John 3.3, 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that is something we can't do because you know Nicodemus says, Well, how can somebody go back into his mother's womb? Well, you can't. So you have to be born again by the Spirit of God. And then John the Baptist himself would say in John 3.27, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. How clear it is that unless God does this particular work, who would come? And I'll talk about that in just a moment again. But, but lastly, in verse 15, as we prepare to close this section of chapter 16, we see how Lydia courageously and boldly identified herself with Christ by being baptized and setting about doing good and expressing her newly found gift of hospitality and persuading Paul and his companions to stay with her in her home. A substantial one able to hold her family servants and her guests. I mean, she was quite a saleswoman to persuade Paul. She had to be. Paul wasn't easily persuaded by flesh. <laughs> but she said, she persuaded him and they would stay. Well, that closes out the section. But I want you to remember a few things, please. Please remember a few things from this lesson today. Remember these things. Number one, God res readies us to reach out. God readies us to reach out. Many times he has to say no to get us to the place where he can say yes. God readies us in that no to reach out when he says yes. God readies us to reach out. Secondly, we reach out to those he has readied. We now go and we reach out. We share the gospel. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We declare the good news of Jesus Christ. But if he has sent us in the proper way, at the proper time, he has readied the hearts that we come to see. He's prepared them. It says the Lord opened Lydia's heart. We reach out to those he has readied. Thirdly, remember this. The most important element in evangelism is praying for God to open hearts. The most important element in evangelism is praying for God to open hearts. In other words, we can't go unprepared. If God has prepared us and He's prepared them, we need to pray. God open hearts. And fourthly, the same God who ordained the end. In this particular case, the end was Lydia's salvation. The same God who ordained the end, which was Lydia's salvation, also ordained the means to the end, which was what? Paul's witness of Jesus Christ. He ordains the end and the means to the end. And if you need a, 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 a passage of Scripture, let me give it to you. We'll close with this verse. Actually, it's two verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Now, by the way, all of this doesn't say 
what it says to tell us that we don't have to do anything. No. Pay attention. We need to listen. We need to wait. We need to respond. But notice what he says to this church. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose. But then notice verse 14. To which he called you by our gospel. We preach the gospel to you. He readied your heart. You received. You're saved. Bottom line, God saves to the uttermost. But we have to be obedient to be the voice, to be the voice of God's word, to be the voice of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God acts. We act. God moves. We move. God prepares. We prepare. God readies. We are ready. God is reaching out. We're reaching out. God saves. We back off. He did the work. He does the work. We preach. But He does the work. He saves. And you're here if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He saves to the uttermost. It was Jesus who died on the cross. There was no one else that could have died on that cross but Jesus Christ. He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He rose from the dead so that we have the promise of everlasting life. Let's pray.